ADP knows anything you hear, anything you don't hear, anything you kind of heard, anything you weren't supposed to hear and now have to pretend like you didn't, can change the world of work. From HR to payroll, ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to take on the next anything. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Welcome to Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. Thanks for listening. If you're not already a subscriber, please do sign up at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. This week, populism or traditional conservatism? What's the future of the Republican Party? Is the GOP moving beyond Trump and back towards the kind of establishment-led conservatism that dominated in the post-Reagan years? Or is there a new path that fuses elements of the Trump-era populism with more familiar tenets of conservative philosophy? Or maybe the future is just more Donald Trump. With me to talk about this is Paul Ryan, former GOP Speaker of the House, and Mitt Romney's running mate in the 2012 presidential election, once himself seen as something of a radical, a Tea Party supporter. Ryan was very critical of Donald Trump. Ryan stepped down from politics after just one and a half terms as Speaker. Now mixing life in business while teaching economics at Notre Dame and spending more time with his family, Ryan remains an important thinker in conservative circles. Paul Ryan joins me now. Speaker Ryan, thanks very much for being here. Yep, good to be here. Thanks for having me. So I'll talk about the future of the Republican Party, the future of conservatism, which you're a passionate exponent, passionate believer. Let's talk first of all, if we can, about the kind of the real immediate politics. We've just seen, obviously, the shenanigans, shall we call them, in the House of Representatives, when the divided Republicans took 15 ballots to get to elect a speaker, Kevin McCarthy. You have a lot of direct experience, obviously, of being speaker, having been speaker yourself. What do you think that episode tells us about the condition of the Republican Party. And again, about the the party in in Congress, you experienced that yourself directly. There is this sense that there's this kind of hardcore, whatever you want to call them, who now kind of somehow hold the party to ransom and can control and do things. What's your sense of what it tells us and what we can expect from that Republican majority in Congress, fragile as it is? It tells me that we have to get away from sort of just aimless populism and get back to a philosophically guided, principled form of conservatism that becomes our North Star. Because if just pure populism is our North Star, then you're going to incentivize this kind of thing. And when you've got a narrow margin like this, it's going to be really hard to manage the place. The holdouts, the 20 people, I think they're basically two groups. I wouldn't say they're all the same. You have some entertainers in there who just wanted to sort of throw a bomb and maybe blow up a speakership for the sake of doing so and the fame, the attention and all that can come with it. And then you had a group of people who sincerely wanted changes and knew that because they had the leverage, they could get those changes that otherwise they would not have. So they went for the broke and got it. And that's a rational thing. It can be a constructive thing. Frankly, some of the things they got, I like. Just some of the things that you think- Well, all the things about the appropriations committee, that always was a big stick in my craw. That bothered me a lot. I actually hate omnibus appropriation bills. I- negotiated a number of them. I had far too much power as Speaker of the House in putting those things together. I made far more decisions than I should have made, which should have been decentralized and out to the committees of jurisdiction and the members who are specialists in those areas. But because of the way the system now effectively works, it gives the power to the leaders. And that's wrong, I think. So I think they're right to be upset about that. The problem with this is you can't just do it from the House. I set up a bicameral bipartisan committee on the last omnibus I negotiated because I was so horrified at the process. I had Steve Womack, a really good legislator, share this thing. So Democrats, Republicans, House and the Senate, 
to redesign the budget process so that we had a functioning budget process with 12 separate appropriation bills done in 12 committees at 12 different times, not this big omnibus. But in order to make that work, you have to rewrite the 1974 Budget Act. You have to change the rules to make this work, in my opinion. And the Democrats won't go along with it. At least the Democrat leaders won't go along with it. Why? Because they like that kind of power. Nancy and Chuck liked omnibuses because it gave them a whole lot more power over their party. And that's sort of how they like governing the place. I eschew that. I don't like that personally. It's not who we are as Republicans. So I think these members were really right to be upset and concerned and try and get something for that. They're going to get frustrated, though, because you can't just do it from House Republicans. You got to get buy-in from the Senate and the Democrats to really get this thing right. But the concern is correct. And so I think that was the most valid thing. The motion to vacate, that's a mistake. Yeah. And that was a problem for me, but it's become normalized and weaponized. I mean, it was Nancy Pelosi who actually first got away with that single member. Yeah, she did that. She changed in the rules. Yeah. It's what took John Boehner out. Right. Uh, I don't go into play-by-play. -play. It wasn't a concern of mine, frankly, because... The way I became speaker, I was drafted and asked to do it. I didn't look for the job. It sort of looked for me. But now the way it's positioned, I think some people are going to probably take this thing for a ride. And I think that's pretty dangerous. That's pretty ugly precedence. A couple of specifics. Obviously, the topic that everybody's concerned about, particularly in the kind of markets and economic field, is this issue of the debt limit and the fact, obviously, once, once again, we've had these fights before. It does seem to an observer like me that Republicans seem always to get the worst of all possible worlds when you come to these government shutdown or debt limit debates because the Republicans, you know... Yeah, but it's hold, because, hold. It's because we're, the, we're the party of smaller government, limited government. Yeah, but, like... but the Republicans sort of hold the government to ransom in this way, saying perfectly reasonably, we cannot go on simply yeah. just allowing debt to explode like this. We cannot go along. We really want to rein in government spending. And then they don't manage to achieve any of that, any of their goals, but they get the blame for apparently bringing, you know, the government to the brink of default. Do you see... Exactly Exactly that same old movie playing out again this time? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sorry. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I was involved in a handful of these. Um, let me say this. It's not unprecedented to have some kind of fiscal reform accompanying a debt limit increase. Right. I was on the Bowl Simpson Commission, which I think that was Democrats who drove that. Pretty sure it was Kent Conrad and guys like that. Right. So Bull Simpson, the sequester, the caps. So we have had... Debt limits increases with fiscal responsibility measures accompanying them. That has happened before. It happened in Obama. It's happened before. I'm not... So so it's not too much to ask for that. What these members sort of required or demanded in exchange for the speaker vote are things that I like. I like the idea of a budget resolution written as they described it. So long as defense gets its increase and you just cut non-defense discretionary and, and all the other things that they wanted. I like all of that. The problem is you've got to pass. I mean, you've, you can pass a budget resolution with, with a majority vote, fine, hmm. if it's just passing a budget resolution, but getting it into law and executing it is an entirely different thing. Right. And so I don't know if members have set their expectations accordingly or if they've set them at such high levels that they're setting themselves up for disappointment and then they're going to blame Kevin in the process. Is there any possibility so, that some kind of a deal, which does, you know, as you say, I mean, obviously the Democrats are going to push for a clean... Yeah, yeah. Any any Democrat politician worth their weight in yeah. salt will do that. But is there any possibility of any kind of a deal where Republicans, where conservatives do get some I think commitments to spending constraint without... Having yeah, I think that's reasonable to expect. I think it's reasonable to ask for that. I think it's reasonable to expect that. And by the way, we're going to pay our bills. At the end of the day, the full faith and credit is going to be restored. You know, there could be some financial management in the meantime. The X date could be moved around. Maybe a couple more extreme measures can be deployed. It's going to be a bit of an ugly episode. Market's going to, you know, rile up a little bit. But when the dust settles, we're going to be fine. 
well, as several economists point out, you know, it may not be a formal default, but a favoured form of dealing with these situations is to inflate your way out of the debt anyway. So, yeah. which of course then affects bondholders the same way. Just one final question on this immediate Congress. So, look, with a Democratic-controlled Senate, with a Democrat in the White House, with this fragile majority in the House. What are the realistic objectives in terms of advancing the Republican agenda, even yeah. if not necessarily into law, but just advancing the Republican question. agenda? I, I think building the agenda is the primary objective. Doing good oversight over the executive branch, and that's just bringing the executive branch to accountability, obviously what any majority should do. That's point one. But point two is build the agenda. So what I think members, hopefully now that this election's passed, are getting their eye on the ball of, it's, it's all about 2025. It is not about our press and our attention that we're getting in 2023 and 2024. It is about, are we setting the stage for a 2024 election whereby we give the American people a very clear and convincing and compelling choice of policies based on our principles that solve the problems of the day? And can we have a choice election? Well, who cares who the nominee is for this point? This is what we did with our Better Way agenda when I became speaker in 2015. Are you curating and building an agenda through all of your committees? Now that we have these gavels, now that we can command the Congressional Budget Office and all these things that you get with the majority, build an agenda that is based on our conservative principles. That's how we get the muscle memory of being a policymaking party back again. That's how you sort of get through the phases of finding out who we are and what we stand for as a movement and bring it to the country. If you win that election in 2024, which I think we should, provided we don't have Trump as our nominee, I think we lose with him. I think we win with just about anybody else. Then you've got a governing coalition in 2025 to do the right thing, to solve a lot of these big problems. So that is the job of this House majority as I see it. Build the agenda that we can take to the country. The boiler room for the ideas of our party always comes from the House of Republicans. It always has. Because you think partly the problem in 2022 was there wasn't really that agenda. I mean, you know, it was no. dominated obviously by Trump and to some extent by Dobbs. And we can talk about some of those kind of things. But it didn't look, I mean, you know, the Republican message was we got terrible yeah, I mean, inflation. The they overreached. Joe Biden did not have a mandate to go hard left, to give the keys to the kingdom to the progressives. He had a mandate to beat Donald Trump and try and be a centrist. That's what the suburban voter that voted for him wanted. He didn't do that. He went hard left. It freaked people out. So they rightfully threw Republicans back in the control. I think Trump cost us a lot of seats at the end there. Dodds definitely had an effect. I think Trump was a bigger effect in the closing arguments of the notion of him running for president and the candidates that he muscled through the primary were terrible general election candidates. That cost us the Senate very clearly. And it probably cost us, I don't know, 12 or 15 seats in the House. So let's talk about that agenda, because that's exactly what I wanted to talk about, particularly with your interest in conservative ideas. I was very struck. You said right at the beginning of our discussion, you said that our goal should be to get us back to a conservatism of principles and values. And I think that word back will immediately either strike a chord yeah. or yeah. an alarm yeah. bell. Yes. Okay, or, fine. Yeah. No, no, I'm not picking up on that. I'm just saying it's striking that you said that, because I think one of the concerns that people have about Trump. There are a lot of people, I think, out there, Wall Street Journal readers, probably many of them, who don't like a lot of what Trump stood for and said and the way he behaved and certainly don't want nothing to do with January the 6th and all the election denial, but who did actually think that the Republican Party, and you know, you were a leader in the Republican Party, you were Speaker of the House, you were the vice presidential nominee in 2012, had actually, for all its great strengths and advantages and virtues, 
had somehow lost touch with Republican voters, with ordinary Americans. We saw that, you know, when Eric Cantor lost his primary seat famously, and then we saw it, you know, in repeated defeats for Republicans, and of course, the rise of the Tea Party and everything else. And so this populism, I know which you have trouble with, this populism arose out of a sense of dissatisfaction with where the Republican Party was going, that clinging adherence to the faith of Reagan-era tax cuts, deregulation, immigration, pro-immigration, pro-trade. I'm exaggerating here deliberately for effect, but a kind of... I'm a Reagan Republican. Yeah, I'm a classical liberal. But it became in the 90s and the early 2000s the uniparty idea that Democrats and Republicans were both in favor of globalization. Mm -hmm. They were both in favor of, you know, immigration amnesties. They were both in favor of free trade. They were both friendly, cozying up to big business. And that that needed to change. And I wonder whether or not, and and I think there's a fear, and when you say something like, let's get back to, to conservative values, there's a fear among a lot of people that the trauma of the last few years, we hope, is past us, that passing that trauma will be seen as an opportunity by many Republicans, for want of a better word, in the establishment, who think, oh, thank God we can go back to Reagan, Bush, Romney, McCain, whatever. It's a a great question. Actually, I've learned a lot in this whole process myself. Changed some of my own views during this process. That's a great setup and a good question. First of all, I was very pleased with the Tea Party. I was part of that Tea Party. I was disgusted with our majority that we lost in 2006. I thought we had become this bloated, earmark, big business, crony capitalism party. So I was a backbenching conservative in those days, sort of a Jim Jordan of the time. I'm disgusted with it. And I wanted to get back to our core roots of being a real conservative party. I come from Janesville, Wisconsin. I represent the Rust Belt. So The people I represented, which much like the rest of the middle part of the country, lost a lot. They lost a lot in the second half of the 20th century. There are many reasons why they lost a lot, but they lost economic ground. Robots is what we always said in Janesville because of the way the plant ended up changing there. But it was automation, technology, and and trade and displacement and immigration. The Paul Ryan of 2010 probably would not have acknowledged that. The Paul Ryan of 2023 does acknowledge that. You know, you go through things through life and you learn. On immigration, A, we need to um, obviously fix this broken border and all of that. And we do need legal immigration for lots of reasons. But we need to do it in such a way that we do not depress people's wages. And that's something that I think the earlier version of conservatives missed, is how do you make sure that you're not depressing wages of people who are citizens? I think we can do that. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can address labor market shortages, bring the skills that we need into the country, We do not have a real problem, so to speak. We have hardworking people from Latin America and Mexico wanting to come into our country to contribute, and that's a good thing. We align perfectly on culture. So this is a good thing, but it's got to be done right, done legally, and done in such a way that it doesn't depress people's wages. That's a more nuanced view that has been informed, I think, by this reactionary populism, which was reacting to, you know, those issues on trade. I believe in free trade, but that means you need to enforce the damn laws. That means when people are cheating, when people are taking advantage of us, we're not reciprocating, then you need to do something about that. And a lot of our presidents did not do that. So I think we were taken advantage of as a country for Pax Americana, which was great for the globe, good for America. But Pax Americana became overly generous in that we didn't have reciprocal agreements. So I'm not a fan of most of Trump's trade moves. I'm a fan of some of them, but most of them I'm not. But I think we have reacquired an appreciation in the conservative movement that we want more markets. We want lower tariffs. We want to expand our markets for our products. We have to do that to be a growing economy with high living standards. 
But I think it also requires that we make sure that our agreements are adhered to and that they're followed. So enforcement, trade enforcement, I think, is, is something that's a new part of conservatism that needs to be emphasized that wasn't before. So those are two little asterisks I'm putting on the Reagan 2.0 candidacy, yeah. the Reagan 2.0 kind of philosophy. But are we a classical liberal party that believes in liberty and freedom and individual rights and free markets and free to choose? Or are we going to be a blood and soil nationalist party that has all this isolationism and is and becomes, you know, believes in playing identity politics. If that's what this is, that's going to lose. Yeah. It's not right. It's wrong. So I really do think there is a happy warrior, inclusive conservatism to be had that appreciates those concerns that our citizens have and adjust accordingly to present a coherent, principled, philosophically consistent agenda that is consistent with our country's founding principles. You obviously pay very close attention to what people are saying and say you're adjusting on those issues of immigration and trade without abandoning your principles of freedom and the ideas that that are represented by them. What about there's another strand of this economic populism that we're seeing on the right to some extent, and this is where it also kind of crosses over in a weird way with the left, is concern about business. Yeah, I'm a little worried about that. Because I mean, well, let me put the argument to you, which which is that big businesses, you know, you talked about crony capitalism. That has been a feature of American capitalism. We've seen a tremendous concentration of industry by sector. We do see companies using their influence incredibly effectively to gain themselves legislative or regulatory advantages in Washington. And there is a concern that, especially in an age of inequality, rising inequality, and I know that we can argue about measurements of inequality, but that actually this new populist movement, which is so many blue collar workers and people who never voted Republican in their life now favoring the Republican Party because of this nationalist populism, they also want, hey, let's level the playing field a bit. Let's take on this business. You're going to make businesses less competitive and you're going to have just more crony capitalism with that path as far as I'm concerned. So what I don't like to see in the conservative movement is this idea of using government as a power, like redoing our antitrust laws. What goes around comes around. I see Republicans wanting to change our antitrust laws to go after a few big tech companies, which to me is a really bad strategy, bad idea. And it's going to ripple through so many other cases that you're going to give the progressives more tools to do what they want to do at the end of the day by getting in bed with them on issues like that. So I think we need to go back to our limited government roots on this, our free market roots on this. And the problem with, as you just described, leveling the playing field, let the market do that. Let's not sit in Washington and pick winners and losers so that our side wins and their side loses. Because guess what? Power's fleeting. It's going to change. Has the market done a good job of leveling the playing field? Well, I think that's... So there is where I think the old classical liberal crony capitalism attack is warranted, which is the market does well if the market is fair and if it's clean market. But if you have the thumb on the scale in Washington, and if Washington sees that it can be in the business of picking winners and losers, the Inflation Reduction Act is an enormous amount of industrial policy and crony capitalism, which is going to have decades of tale of favoritism and crony capitalism. So that's why I just think you need to go back to our free market roots. By the way, it works better. It's more efficient and it's more fair. Mm. People survive and rise and do well based on the merits of their idea and their hard work, not based on who they know. And I think you can have good populist politics that accompany what I just said. One other quick question on the on the economics of this new populism, and then I want to come on to some of the cultural topics too, but which is the growth of governance, particularly entitlements. So, yeah, I just put a book out at AEI. I know, you've been very much associated with the idea that we need entitlements. But when anybody looking at the numbers <clears throat> looks at the growth of entitlements reform, looks at the demographics profile of the country, and you, know, you can disagree about the date, but we know we're facing fiscal armor as the way things stand. 
And yet it's very easy for that. It has proved a great political success, as you are very, very well aware, because you've been on the receiving end of it for Democrats to portray that as throwing granny off the cliff. And there are, again, there are populists. Trump himself came out and said, I'm not going to get rid of Medicare and Social Security. I'm absolutely for entirely, you know, this is outrageous. I'm going to look after our workers. How do you square that? I mean, do you have to, have to have, once again, have to go back and have that honest conversation yeah. with people and say, this is unaffordable on a long-term basis and we have to deal with it? Or do you just embrace it? No, I, I mean, I, Trump and I always sort of, we didn't agree on that. That's what I call aimless populism. That is just pure populism that is not rooted in any kind of principle or any set of facts, frankly. So just to be popular for the sake of being popular is not a vision for a country. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I think it's really important we get back to our fiscal roots. I looked at Kevin's challenge getting the speakership And the thing that I liked about what I saw was this new energy to be fiscal conservatives, this new energy to be focused on limited government, this new energy to focus on addressing the drivers of our debt. That made me excited. Now, I think they placed it in the wrong place by going after Kevin and the 15 votes, but the energy is great. And so I do believe that we get past this sort of aimless Trump cult of personality populism we can get back to a populism that is anchored to principles. And I think we can make it popular. I've spent my whole career on this. We can make it popular to do what needs to be done to stop a debt crisis. Because if we are worth anything politically, if any skill whatsoever politically, we ought to be able to make the case that the person who is against reforming Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid is for them going bankrupt because that's the path we are on. If you do nothing, these programs go away. These programs, basically, they go bankrupt. And we have a debt crisis. The least among us get hit the first. And we lose the dollar as the world's reserve currency. A total crisis for the country. And if we do nothing by just being afraid of the politics of that, then we are doing damage to our own constituents, to our country. And shame on the person that demagogues this issue to bring that about. So I think we should be able to take political offense on this. We just put out a book at the American Enterprise Institute showing exactly how you should reform these programs, how you should rewrite the safety net to make it a welfare to work safety net so we get upper mobility and labor force participations. If you do three things in this country, we're going to have a hell of a good century. Effectively take on China, reform our entitlements and our safety net to get people working and to prevent a debt crisis and fix our immigration system once and for all so that we get the right labor force participation, but we also have a country that has borders. We're going to take a short break there, but when we come back, we'll be talking more about the future of conservatism. And I'll be asking Paul Ryan about his own future and any possible return for him to frontline politics. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. You're listening to Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Don't forget you can listen to the latest episode anytime on your smart speaker. Just say, play the Opinion Free Expression podcast. Now, back to Jerry Baker. I'm back with former Republican Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan. I want to quickly move on to abortion. You mentioned Dobbs uh, in the context where well, I raised it and you agreed with it in the context of the 2022 election. How should the Republicans deal with that issue? Because it does seem to have cost votes. There is this perception. I, I think, Republicans I think I'm, I'm, you're pro-life. I spent my whole adult life in the pro-life mood. I was ecstatic at the ruling. And I think the issue is just going to move through. I don't think there's anything we have to do at the federal level. I think the states are going to figure this out and different states are going to have different laws, but that's the way the Constitution works. And that means you're going to have education on this issue. You know, Glenn Youngkin passed his bill through his legislature that he had the votes for. 
for. And I'm sure there'll be all these other legislatures doing the same. So I don't think there's anything you have to do. Continue to make the pro-life case, but that's a case that's not going to be up to state legislatures. You've already said you don't think Trump should be the nominee. You've been very clear in your criticism of Trump all along. You've been very consistent about that. Handicap the race for me next year. How does it go? Yeah, I don't think he gets it. I really don't think Trump gets the nomination. I don't know what his legal issues are. I frankly don't have a good sense of that. It wouldn't surprise me if he doesn't finish the race. Because if he's going into a race that he knows he's going to lose because the polls are showing it, I can't imagine him narcissistically handling that. And you can't do a big lie, you know, in a primary with other Republicans. So I don't think that works. And the reason I don't think he's going to be our nominee is because our voters, most of them know we lose with this guy. We lose constantly with him. It's proven. We know it. And if we go with him again, then we are giving the country to the left by default. Three straight national elections. Yeah. And so, I mean, this is pretty obvious. So I think we have a great second generation, a next generation of leaders more than capable of taking the mantle, and winning the election and getting us to where we need to be in 2025, a governing majority. And you're standing on the sidelines right now? I mean, yeah, yeah, the I, candidates? I'm yeah, standing on the yeah. sidelines. Yeah. Look, yeah. I just want to get past Trump. Yeah. We get past Trump and we have a blessing. We, we have such a better talent pool than the Democrats have. I can go through the list of names, just really good candidates, great potential candidates. I'm excited about them. I know every one of them. And I think any one of these people would get us past Trump and probably be able to win. And the that's White House without picking us. a single name. That is DeSantis, Pompeo, Youngkin, yeah, Pence, Haley. Any of those. You think? Yeah, any of those. And any of them would be presumably yeah. Biden. The, the, yes, absolutely. The, the question is, is there are there too many non-Trump primary candidates in there that he gets it by default because they carve up the non-Trump vote? The field just has to get winnowed down in time. The, the key is come, I don't know, Super Tuesday that enough people realize I'm not going to get it. I'm getting out of the race, letting the field consolidate. So as long as the field consolidates at a sufficient amount at the right time, I think we're going to be fine. And I really think our voters are going to want to move past Trump and actually win. And the risk that I hear a number of Republicans say to me is, you know, Trump either pulls out or loses the Republican primary. And then he runs as an independent purely to destroy the Republican. I mean, I could see him doing that only because just the way his mind works. But he would get blamed for giving the country to the left. And so he would be blamed not only for losing, but he would be blamed for ruining it. And I don't think he would want that. So, I mean, I could be wrong about that because he can be a pretty spiteful guy. But I don't think he'll do that because he would absolutely get blamed for giving the country to the left. So you served as speaker. You were vice presidential nominee. You've left politics. You're doing a range of uh, fascinating sort of portmanteau of activities. Any plans to return to national politics? I I have no plans. I'm really enjoying my family life. It's what I wanted. It's why I left. It's been spectacular. I had the relationship with my kids that I always wanted that I didn't quite have before. I do interesting things at Notre Dame and my charitable foundation and the AEI. So I get to scratch my sort of policymaking itch. I have a big soft spot in poverty solutions. I get to work on those. You never say never. I'm 52 years old. Like down the road, I could do something, but it's not in my mind right now. All right. Thank you very much for joining Free Expression. You bet, Jerry. Thanks. Perfect. Thank you very much. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker from the Wall Street Journal Opinion Pages. Thanks for joining us. Please do join us again next week when we'll have another deep look at one of the big issues driving our world. Thank you for listening and goodbye. This message comes from Viking committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.